Uh, let me remind you all where we are. We're in the fifth week of a sermon series about uh, living above the sun. Uh, that is a, a, a counter proposition to what we hear over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes. And this is a study, a reflection on the book of Ecclesiastes. We're basically learning how not to do it by learning from uh, his own experience. And what he tells us is that everything under the sun is smoke and mirrors. It's vapor. It's meaningless. And what he describes as under the sun is everything we can experience here on planet Earth. Uh, C.S. Lewis really cuts to the chase when he says, aim at Earth and you get nothing. Aim at heaven and you get Earth thrown in. Um, a lot of what we're going to be t have talked about and will talk about today is counterintuitive, but that certainly doesn't make it false. It just means that you thought it was to be that way, but to get over there, you have to go that way. And uh, it's kind of like uh, those early ships looking for the far east, and they went west to find the eastern, uh, the Asian countries. It's counterintuitive, but that's why they went this way and found North America by accident, more or less. So what I'd like to do is uh, use this, isn't it, it's called the good book. It is a good book. It's a great book. It's the Bible. And uh, I'd like to uh, use this as a, a particular instrument today to hear what the Bible says about uh, this fifth topic in our sermon series, wealth above the sun. Because we're going to hear all about wealth underneath the sun from Ecclesiastes, but the Bible has a lot to say about wealth. So um, I'd like to begin where um, our author began today in Ecclesiastes, and I would title this uh, Ode, you know, like a song, Ode to the Ego and to self-actualization. Um, you know, if you start from the wrong launch pad, everything that follows after that is a false conclusion. So this author of Ecclesiastes is giving us a great lesson. If you start from his launch pad, whether it's King Solomon or not, but this wealthy individual, if you start from the wrong launch pad, you will reach his conclusions. And so far, this is discovering, is he even on the right launch pad? Listen to him today. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. Made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves. He had lots of employees, in other words. Ran a big business. Had other slaves who were born in my house. I owned her herds and flocks more than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I even acquired men and women singers, a harem as well. In fact, he says in kind of his concluding thought on this particular topic, wealth underneath the sun, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. Let's learn on his dime what the reward of this is. I refused my heart no pleasure. If it feels good, I did it. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. When I surveyed all that was my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve. Listen to this conclusion. Everything was meaningless. Smoke and mirrors. Nothing was gained under the sun. That's his launch pad 
is all of life is to be found living on what you can acquire here on planet Earth, living, uh, that's his understanding of under the sun. But remember the title and the theme of this series is we're talking about a completely different launch pad, a completely different starting point. Uh, he will get worse. Um, he says in the fifth chapter, whoever loves money never has money enough. Have you ever been that way or have you known someone that way? No matter how much they had of money, it wasn't enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. Make this much this year, I want to make this much next year. And when I make this much next year, it's not enough. And I want to make even more this year. And that driving, that, driving, that per pursuing of acquiring more wealth. And then he offers a lovely insight. In his, well, he, he offers this insight. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. In other words, the richer you get, the, the more friends you have who want to help you spend that money. He said, that's not a blessing. What benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? So feasting his eye, in other words, he's got all these wonderful people, kind of hero worshipers uh, that glom on to him. But uh, he said, for whatever that's worth. And so then he has this marvelous insight. The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much. But the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. That he says the strange thing is the more you have, the more you worry about what you have. Um, anybody followed the stock market of the past week? It went the wrong direction. And anxiety all over Wall Street and everywhere else. Just the anxiety went up this way as the money went that way. Uh, and the more you have, the more to worry about. It's a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded, hoarded to the harm of its owner. Well, I, as I said, um, this launch pad, it, it doesn't end with Ecclesiastes, although he's a, the primary uh, source of that uh, uh, wisdom of that launch pad in Scripture. But I, I want to just speak to one place in the New Testament as well, and that is St. Paul. Because we're talking about people who are on this side, who are living under the sun, who make the shift and begin to live above the sun. And we know St. Paul. He was a person who lived under the sun and he moved to living above the sun. But he speaks with his own life uh, in this posture. And uh, he has the same habits when he speaks of his former life that the author of Ecclesiastes has. And that is he cannot get away from the word I. This is a massive, uh, remember, ode to the ego, ode to self-actualization. So Paul will say in his seventh chapter, sort of a pre-conversion testimony. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. So this is somebody living under the sun who's trying to keep the law, but living on the terms of life under the sun. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it. It must be sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature, that there's a quality of my being. He's saying as a religious man, there's something there that's not good. He calls the sinful nature because I see it. I have the desire to do what is good. I cannot carry it out. What I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me. So he said, I find this law at work. When I want to do good, there's something right alongside there that makes me not do good. Evil is right there with me. 
In my inner being, I delight in God's law, but there's another law at work too, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. And so he, he comes to this significant conclusion and he asks a rhetorical question, if you will, but it's a question that perhaps we have asked as well. In his place of frustration, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Not a whole lot different from where the author of Ecclesiastes finds himself as well. This is a spiritual man, kind of this, the spiritual version, the righteous Ecclesiastes kind of person who's trying to be a keeper of the law, but doing on his own terms. I will try harder. I can do this. I get this. I will try harder. And he's frustrated. And finally says, what a wretched person I am. In other words, this is bigger than anything that we can take a hold of and, and, and rely simply upon ourselves. But Paul shows us the way out. And in the next verse says, thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is making that transition. He's crossing over the line he is moving from this self-centered preoccupation with his own ego and his own self-actualization. And he's moving to a posture of surrender and giving up. We hardly ever hear this from the author of Ecclesiastes, but we hear it boldly and clearly in Paul's letters. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, we were singing that song at the very beginning today, Oh, Happy Day. What was the happy day about? It was about the conversion of, an, of the author of that song. Happy day that he had made the transference from life under the sun to life above the sun. Just because it's one of my favorite hymns in our, in our hymnals, in many hymnals of the church, it, uh, we could choose hundreds of hymns that speak the heart of the author of the hymn about conversion. This is the, uh, that great song, I would call it, rather than the ode to the ego, this is the song of the converted. Now, the author of this died before he was 30 years old in 1680. So imagine here is a young fellow who has given us one of the most beautiful, passionate hymns that the church has ever known, all the verses of it. But let's take time just to see this one. Here is one who has crossed over the line. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Where's the I in there? Oh, my soul, praise him, for he is thy health and salvation. Join the great throng, psaltery organ and song, sounding in glad adoration. Do you see the movement from other-centeredness to God-centeredness, even in those words? Wow. So let's spend some time on the other side of the line and start from a different launch pad and see what Scripture has from the Old and New Testament on this new launch pad that Paul is pointing us towards. Um, I just love this particular passage in Proverbs. We're looking at wisdom literature, as it's called. Ecclesiastes is a wisdom book, as is the Psalms and as is Proverbs. Here's Proverbs that begins uh, this lovely transition, if you will, to this other launch pad. I, Two things I ask of you, O Lord, do not refuse me before I die. So here's the prayer of a, of a, of a serious seeker of the Lord. Two things I ask of you, keep falsehood and lies far from me. So his heart is moved. Maybe he has been tempted to lie, or in his former life he tended not to tell the truth. So he's saying, for me, Lord, two things I ask you. One is, 
Help me to be an, an honest man, a man of truth, a man who people can depend that my yes is yes and my no is no, no more and no less. What a lovely prayer to say honor and integrity was important in his life. But then he has this other piece of it. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Here's a lovely thought. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Doesn't want to fall into the, the trap of the, the Ecclesiastes author. Um, but he also says, but not too poor. And then he goes on to explain that a bit. Give me only my daily bread. Isn't it lovely Jesus maybe knew that line or took that line, but somehow it becomes wrapped into the Lord's Prayer that he gives to his people. Give us this day our daily bread. Enough for the day, Lord. Enough for this season of my life. Give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you. There's the trap. Why is it hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus is speaking to the rich young ruler. Because rich people tend to become more and more self-sufficient, not dependent. If they're in a bind, they look towards their money to rescue them and to get them out of trouble. Or they want to do something, they look toward their money to be enabled to do it. And so this insight from Proverbs, I may have too much and disown you that I don't need you, or I can take care of these things myself. And say who is little, or I may become poor and steal. And yet, again, the frame of reference is towards God and his relationship with the Lord. And if I were to do that, then I would dishonor the name of my God as a worshiper. What a pure heart uh, this, uh, the wisdom of this Proverbs uh, author is. But let's press forward now and um, go from there, from the wisdom literature to one of the prophets. We could tap any number of prophets and get something like this, but we don't have time for that. So let's look at the, the last prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi. And almost his last chapter, his, almost his last thoughts on this. And it focuses on this issue of wealth under the sun or wealth above the sun. And he says this in the third chapter of Malachi. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. So this is Malachi the prophet speaking on behalf of the Lord God Almighty to God's people and saying, Will a man rob God? And on the one hand, we say, well, I should hope not. And yet the word here is, yet you rob me. But you ask. See, we like to be blind to this stuff. This is called being in denial. Uh, how do we rob you? Think of the rich young ruler again. Lord, I keep all these commandments. Don't I deserve eternal life? Jesus, you know, rolled off five or six of those ten commandments. And he says, I've kept them all. How do we rob you? And so going for the jugular here, pleasant or unpleasant as it may be, in tithes, which is an Old Testament word for 10% or tenths, in tithes and offerings. And he says counterintuitively that there's a relationship between how your life prospers and how you are about generosity. You are under a curse. And he says the whole, everybody here in this, this nation has become a self-centered, selfish nation. He's speaking to that time in Israel's history because you are robbing me. Be, bring the whole tenth into the storehouse. 
that there may be food in my house. Test me in this counterintuitive. Give it away and you will receive more and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Aim at earth and you get nothing. Aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in counterintuitive. Well, that's Old Testament thought on it. Let's take the two significant personalities of the New Testament. Uh, There are others, but let's take Jesus, God's only son, and let's take Paul, uh, the great convert of the New Testament, and see what they say on this same topic of wealth above the sun. Let's take Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, where he will say, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Oh, that the writer of Ecclesiastes could have heard this teaching and had a chance to respond to it. Would he or would he not? There, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. What a novel idea. What does it mean? Where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal, all those sleepless nights are taken away with this new posture. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Profound thought. What is our treasure? What is your treasure? You and the Lord know what it is, and where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We know what the treasure of the author of Ecclesiastes is. He treasures things of the earth. He has treasured them and yet is mystified because they are meaningless. He's missing the whole point. He's living, yes, only under the sun. And yes, he's right. If that's the only frame of reference, that's your only launch pad, then it is meaningless. Uh, It's an opportunity, though, to rise above that. Uh, Jesus will declare, no one can serve two masters. You can't just, well, no one can serve two masters. He will hate one, love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. And again, these, these are the, these punchlines of Scripture trying to appeal to our hard hearts. The punchline, you cannot serve both God and money. And most translations of the New Testament, when they put the word here, money or mammon in this place, uh, it's with a capital letter. Isn't that interesting? Basically, they're saying this is personal and this is a, this is a, a living God that speaks to us and attracts us to him, this God called mammon or money, this burning desire to have something or to have something more. You cannot serve two gods at one. You can only serve one God. Choose this day whom you will serve. Well, that's Jesus one place on the topic. St. Paul, let's take him at one place on this topic. We'll go to one of his letters, 2 Corinthians, and he will say this. Let's be counterintuitive again. But know that it is true. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. So if you put just a few seeds into this field, you're only going to get a few crops out of this field. And if you're abundant with your generosity, you're going to get a lot out of this. So he brings it right to the topic of financial health. Each person should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. So we're not talking about giving that is, well, I have to do this. That's life under the sun and under the law. Or I ought to do this. No, this is a converted individual on that other launch pad and say, well, I'm doing this because I want to. 
I want to give and help in this situation. God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound, flourish in every good work. There's that counterintuitive thought. Um, give, Jesus says in another place, and it will be given to you. Pressed down, shaking together, flowing over, will be returned to you. Abundance. Wealth above the sun. So let me close and simply ask us, you and me, had forced myself to have to look at these questions myself preparing for this, but one is, have you crossed over the line? Are you on the right launch pad, in other words? Have you gotten over here? Life under the sun is without any real valuable meaning. But life above the sun, it's a beautiful place. Aim at earth and you get nothing. Aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. But here's a trickier question for us today because we're talking about wealth under the sun or wealth above the sun. Are you, Mike, are you like the rich young ruler? You brought everything with you from the other side of your life over here. All these things I have kept, Lord, everything okay? Jesus goes right to the heart of the matter. Rich young man, you left one thing over there, your wallet. It's over here still. <laughs> Very sneaky. No one ever really noticed that. You know, this is mine. This is my business. God, this is your business. This is everything I have kept, Lord. And Jesus says, okay, one more. I'm testing you. He's saying to the rich young man, sell everything you have. Jesus tells his own followers in that very next verse, because they say, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. He said, yeah. And he said, and I tell you, everybody who has left everything to follow me will gain even more in return. That same counterintuitive wisdom that the more you give, the more you will have. The cheerful giver, the I want to generosity towards others, towards the Lord, toward his church. And there's an abundance that will flow back into your own life. Counterintuitive, but true. So, two heavy questions. Have you crossed over the line? Praise to the Lord, you almighty, the king of creation. Oh, happy day. Have you crossed over the line? Did you leave anything on the other side of the line? And especially, did you leave the dollar sign over here? Because it needs to come true. And the wisdom of that is not Mike Lumpkin's opinion, is it? It's here in the good book. May today be the first day of the rest of your life when everything is on this launch pad. Thanks be to God. Amen.